New Hope Church has joined with God Rock Church for their study through the Gospel of Matthew. And last week, Pastor BJ got us started on chapter 24, where Jesus begins to prophesy about future events that are going to affect Israel and then later the world. I want to encourage you in this study, as I do in every study, to be a skeptic. Don't believe anything that I tell you. Study it for yourself. Examine the text and then determine if I've presented it to you honestly and accurately. My goal is not to make the text say what I want it to say or what you want it to say. My goal is simply to allow the Bible to say what it actually says. We want the Word of God to speak for itself. That's our prayer for this study and for every study. I'm going to do my best to explain everything as we go so that we can all understand what Jesus is talking about, but I won't have the time to explain every single thing. If you'd like to learn more about what the Bible teaches about the end times, or if I talk about some concepts that you're not familiar with, the best way to grow your understanding of the subject we're going to be talking about today is probably to study through the book of Revelation. And I've put a link on your outlines to where you can do that on our church's website. And if you do it, I'll tell you right now, it's a study that will change your life and you'll be so blessed by it. You'll be so glad if you do it. So as we rejoin Jesus, he's just been teaching a crowd on the Temple Mount. And as he leaves the Temple Mount, some of his disciples have pointed out the glorious structures and riches on display on the Temple Mount. And when they do that, instead of saying, yeah, the temple is awesome, or Israel's number one, Jesus said this in verse 2, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Jesus was speaking prophetically about what would happen to the temple and Jerusalem in 70 AD, as Pastor BJ taught us last week. But to the disciples, this was a shocking statement. They were under the impression that if Jesus was the Messiah, he was going to step up and conquer the Romans on Israel's behalf. He was going to usher in a new age where Israel and the Jews would take their rightful place as the supreme country and people group on the earth, and the temple was going to be at the center of it all. It was going to be the throne from where Messiah would rule the earth. And so to hear Jesus say, yeah, this is all going to be destroyed, made all of them say, wait, what? What? And as we rejoin those same disciples now, just continuing in the text, Jesus is now walking with them. He's leading them off the Temple Mount, up onto the Mount of Olives, a hillside that provides the best panoramic views of the city of Jerusalem. And at its base is the famous Garden of Gethsemane. Now, unsurprisingly, the disciples are hungry for answers, which is why we read this in verse 3. Now as he, that's Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples will learn from all the Gospels that it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
And this marks the beginning of one of the most important teachings Jesus gives during his earthly ministry. It's known as the Olivet Discourse because it takes place on the Mount of Olives. In this discourse, in this teaching, Jesus is going to answer the questions the disciples have just asked him in verse 3. But before he does that, Jesus is going to give an overview of some end-time signs, and he's going to share about things that will unfold during the first generation of the church, things that are going to happen in the lifetime of these specific disciples. I want to ask you in your Bibles to underline the questions the disciples ask in verse 3, because there are many who will say, well, in Matthew 24, in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is just talking about events that happened in Israel between 70 AD and 120 AD. He's just talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the fall of Israel. But look at the questions the disciples ask Jesus. Why are those questions recorded in Scripture? It's because the Lord wanted us to know the specific questions that Jesus is answering in Matthew 24 and into Matthew 25. What are those questions? The first one is, when will these things be? So in other words, when will the temple be destroyed? When will every stone be brought down as Jesus had just predicted in verse 2? The first question is, when's this going to happen, Jesus? The next question is, what will be the sign of your coming? So in other words, what signs are going to tell us that you're about to begin your reign as Lord over the earth? And then lastly, what will be the sign of the end of the age? So what signs will tell us that the end times are almost here? Those are the questions the disciples ask, and those are the questions that Jesus answers in Matthew 24 and 25. And that right there, verse 3, those questions on its own should be enough to clearly disprove the notion that Jesus is only talking about events that took place between 70 AD and 120 AD. That should settle it. Just the disciples' questions in verse 3. So write this down. It's the first fill-in on your outline. The disciples' questions tell us what Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse. The disciples' questions tell us what Jesus is talking about in the Olivet Discourse. Now, to give you an idea of where we're going in this, in, in verses 4 through 8 that we're about to get into, Jesus is going to talk about some of the things that are going to take place between this moment when he's speaking with his disciples and the rapture of the church, which is going to really begin the end times. The rapture is sort of the major kickoff event of that end times era. When I use the term rapture, I'm talking about the coming future event where Jesus will remove the church, that means all believers from the earth, before he judges the earth by pouring out his wrath upon it. And again, if you need more detail, we just don't have time to get into it today. Go and listen to the Revelation series, because for now, we got to keep moving. So here's the overview, and as I said, then we'll get into it in detail. Write this down. Verses 4 through 8 refers to the church age, the church age. So the church age is really the time period between 
Pentecost, which happens in Acts chapter 2, when the church is born, and the rapture. So verses 4 through 8 refer to the church age. These disciples would see the things Jesus is going to talk about happen, but so will we, because the disciples were part of the church age, and so are we. But in different ways, we're going to see these things happen in different ways that I'll explain in the next few minutes. We're going to hear Jesus, you might just want to make a note of this if you're a Bible student, we're going to hear Jesus refer to the phrase, the end, four times in today's text. One of those times is going to be in reference to the end of the disciples' lives. The other three times, it's going to refer to the whole time period of the end times. So Jesus will sometimes call that whole time period the end. That's the time period that begins with the rapture and goes through all of those different end times events. Then when we reach verses 9 through 13, Jesus is going to address things that will happen to the first generation of the church specifically. So things that will happen to these disciples in their lifetime. So write this down. Verses 9 through 13 refers to events that take place during the first generation of the church, the early, early, early church. Verses 9 through 13 refers to events that take place during the first generation of the church. So with that overview in mind, let's take a look at those verses and discover what Jesus wants all of us to know about the end times. So beginning in verse 4, It says, and Jesus answered and said to them, take heed, that means be careful that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. So firstly, Jesus cautions his disciples to watch out for imposters. And history tells us that in the century following this teaching by Jesus, a total of 64 different men came on the scene in and around Israel claiming to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, listen, don't buy it. Don't buy it. This was much more of a concern for the early church because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. The early church believed Jesus would be coming back in their lifetime, and they didn't have all the New Testament scriptures that we do that give us details about how the rapture and the second coming are going to work and the order of events and all these things. So there was much greater danger in that first generation of the church to people being misled by fake Jesuses. Because we have the New Testament, we know that believers, the church, are going to be raptured years before Jesus returns to the earth in the second coming. We know, in fact, that we'll be with Jesus when he returns to the earth at the second coming. And if you read the scriptures, you'll realize that when the second coming happens, when Jesus returns to the earth again, there's not going to be any confusion about who he is. It's going to be like, hmm, there's two guys claiming to be Jesus And I can't figure out which one is actually Jesus. Is it the guy over there named Greg who's been living in his van for the past few years? Or is it that guy flying through the sky like lightning on a white horse more brilliant than the sun with an army of millions trailing behind him? I mean, mean, which one could it be? 
When Jesus comes to the earth again, there's going to be no confusion about who he is. But for the early church, there was a real risk of confusion because they didn't have the New Testament scriptures yet. And so Jesus says, here's what you need to know, disciples. Don't buy it when random people show up claiming to be me. In verses 6 and 7, Jesus is going to give a famous list of signs that will let us know that we're in the end times. But in order to understand how we're meant to read and use this list of signs, we have to jump ahead to verse 8 for a minute because that's where Jesus shares the key to unlocking these verses. Look with me at verse 8. Jesus says, referring to all these signs, he says, all these are the, and then would you underline, beginning of sorrows. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Jesus says that we shouldn't look at any of these signs in verses 6 and 7 as definitive proof that the end times are almost here. He says, these things are just the beginning. And that's important because to this day, Christians and skeptics alike and people who are interested in end times events and the apocalypse, all of them will will look at one event, they'll look at one war, one earthquake, and inevitably someone will say, could this be one of the signs that Jesus talked about in the Christian scriptures? Could this be one of the signs Jesus talked about in the Olivet Discourse? And then people will rightfully respond with something along the lines of, these things are not new phenomena. They've been happening for thousands of years, and every generation of Christians has looked at this list in verses 6 and 7 and said, oh, look, a war, we must be in the last days, or oh, look, an earthquake, a famine, we must be in the end times. Here's the key given by Jesus in verse 8 to understanding these verses correctly. The Greek word that he uses there for sorrows in the original manuscripts is the Greek word odin, odin. It's a feminine noun that refers to the pangs of childbirth, what we would call labor pains or labor contractions. What Jesus actually says in verse 8 is, all these signs that I've just listed are the beginning of labor pains. Now, why does Jesus say something so strange? It's because he wanted us to understand that all these signs are going to occur like labor pains as the end times approach. In this analogy, childbirth is likened to the end times, beginning with the rapture. And labor pains are likened to these signs that Jesus has just listed in verses 6 and 7. Now, what defines labor pains? We all know, don't we? If you've had kids, then you know the routine. They get more and more intense, and they occur closer and closer together as childbirth approaches. If you've had your first child, or you can think back to what that experience was like, if you're a woman, you had the child. If you're a husband, hopefully you got to be there for that then often you know the experience. There's some pain, there's some contractions. You call the hospital, I'm having a baby. The incredibly jaded nurse says, well, how far apart are the contractions? You say, five minutes. And she goes, oh, you're only getting started. I know it feels like the world has ended, but things are gonna get a lot more intense 
and they're going to get a lot more frequent. That's the idea. That's what Jesus is conveying here. All these terrible things we're going to read about in verses 6 through 7, earthquakes, famine, disease, wars, these things, the idea is they're going to become more and more frequent and more and more intense as we get closer and closer to the end times. So write this down. The list of signs given by Jesus in verses 6 and 7 will occur with increasing frequency and intensity as the end times approach. They're going to increase with frequency and intensity as the end times approach. Now, when you understand this, when you get the analogy Jesus is making, you'll understand why the time we're living in is so significant. Everyone's already forgotten that we thought 2019 was a bad year. Do you remember that? On January 1st of 2020, most people were like, thank God, a new year is here. We had no idea what 2020 had in store, did we? The list of signs Jesus gives is now unfolding with such intensity and such frequency that we're all looking around and saying, well, how much more of this can the earth take? Yes, all the things we've seen right now have happened before but not with the frequency and intensity that we're seeing right now. We've never seen so many things happening at the same time as we're seeing right now. So what is on this list of signs that makes it so compelling? Let's jump back to verse 6 and read it together. Jesus says, And you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. That's pretty self-explanatory, right? There's plenty of that that's happened over the past 150 years and a seemingly infinite number of wars and rumors of wars flying around right now. Then Jesus says, see that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. The end is not yet. Jesus says, wars and rumors of wars, they're not the definitive sign that the end is imminent. In other words, when World War II was happening, That was not the sign that the end of the world was imminent. It was a sign we're getting closer, but there was so much more that still needed to happen. That's why Jesus said this. Verse 7, for nation will rise against nation. The Greek word used there for nation is ethnos. It actually refers to an ethnic group. The idea is one ethnic group rising up against another. And scholars believe this also points to fighting within a country among ethnic groups, civil wars. And again, there's just infinite examples of this over the past century and, and even happening right now. Look at America right now. Who would have thought that after eight years of a black president, race relations would actually be worse in America and would spiral down to the state that they're in right now? Who would have thought that today anti-Semitism would be the worst it's been since World War II? Because it is. Jews are literally fleeing parts of Europe because they're being targeted by the increasing Muslim population. And that's not even mentioning what's taken place in the Middle East over the past 10 years, where ISIS has endeavored to wipe out entire ethnic groups such as Coptic Christians and the Yazidis. Do you know that in China right now, they have over a million Uyghur Muslims in concentration camps? Right now, China is waging an ethnic war against them. It's, it's horrific. 
And on and on and on we could go. Despite all our talk about progress and multiculturalism, when you look around the world, there's more ethnically driven wars and fighting and killing than ever, than ever before. Then Jesus says, and kingdom against kingdom. Do you know that before World War I, war was pretty much always kings and their armies fighting against other kings and their armies? World War I was really the first time that kingdoms fought against kingdoms, where it was all in. You had even untrained men sent out to fight because it was kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, famines. The awful thing about famines in our day is that they're no longer caused solely by the weather. Famines happen today for economic reasons and because of wicked leaders. Everywhere where there's a famine, we could end it. Did you catch that? Everywhere where there's a famine, we could end it. There's enough food. We have the transportation technology to solve the problem. We simply don't do what is necessary. And where famine is not weather-related, it's due to wicked leaders, as we're seeing in places like Venezuela right now. We would have thought, surely we could have solved this problem by now. By now, We could. We just don't. Then Jesus says there's going to be increasing and more frequent pestilences. Now, pestilence is a term for a fatal epidemic disease, a plague. The idea here is that there will be epidemics and pandemics with increasing frequency. No present-day examples come to mind on this one, right? But you know what? If you go back to the mid to late 90s, I started noticing this about a decade ago. You go back to the mid to late 90s, the world had been relatively quiet as far as pandemics go, as far as serious large-scale outbreaks. But then towards the late 90s, we started hearing about potential pandemics that were at risk of erupting seemingly every couple of years. SARS, H1N1, bird flu, and it just seemed to go on and on. Those of you who've been alive that long, you, you can probably remember what I'm talking about. You'd see it on the news every few years. This thing could go global. This thing could break out. As though the world was almost trying to get a virus to break out. And then now, of course, we have COVID-19 that's gripped the earth. Then Jesus says, and earthquakes in various places. Do you know that earthquakes are more frequent today than they've been at any other time in history? Earthquake activity around the world is exploding exponentially and has for the last 10 to 20 years. Just go and Google it. In fact, just go and Google this whole list of signs that Jesus gives, and you can give yourself a prophecy update, and you'll see how these things are happening with increasing intensity and increasing frequency. The reason we look at this list of signs and believe we're close to the end times is not because of what's on the list. Because as I said, each of these things as individual events, they've happened before, and they've been happening for millennia. But they've never happened with the frequency and intensity that they're occurring with in our day. It's unparalleled in the history of the earth, what we're seeing right now. In other words, I'm sorry to tell you, you should probably lower your expectations for 2021. Now, one more thing on this particular section. 
because there's something that's just too good for me to leave out if you love this stuff like I do. That Greek word for labor pains, odin, shows up again in Paul's letter to the Thessalonian believers when he's writing about the end times. The Thessalonians were worried that they had missed the rapture. And so Paul wrote to them to reassure them that they weren't about to find themselves stuck in the tribulation, experiencing the wrath of God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, I'll read it to you. You can turn there if you'd like to, but you don't have to. In 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes this. And I want you to notice the pronouns here. He says, but concerning the times and the seasons, brethren... In other words, when it comes to knowing the exact timing of everything end times related, he says, you have no need that I should write to you. Now, why would Paul say, you you don't need me to clear up the exact perfect timing of everything? And then he gives us the answer. He says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, that time period when God judges the earth, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now he switches pronouns. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. In other words, the worst of these labor pains that we're seeing in our world today, the worst of them are not going to be for us. Paul says it's for them, for those who have rejected Jesus. That's their destiny. So what's the destiny of the believer? Paul says in verse 4, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Now skip down to verse 9. In this same paragraph, in this same section of Scripture, addressing the same subject is where Paul famously states emphatically, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, whether we live or die, we should live together with him. Therefore, comfort each other, and edify each other just as you are also doing. For believers, these labor pains are leading up to the rapture where we will escape the worst of it. We will escape the wrath of God. For those who have rejected Jesus, these labor pains are leading up to God pouring out his wrath on the earth. They're going to keep getting worse and worse and worse till they become literally unbearable. Now, all of that was part of the overview of the timing of the end times. In verses 9 through 13, Jesus is going to share with his disciples the things that will unfold in their future during the first generation of the church. How do you know that, Jeff? How do you know that Jesus is switching subjects in this? Well, verse 9 can lead to a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion when you're trying to understand the order of events, because verse 9 simply begins with the term, then. So people read that and they think that whatever Jesus is talking about next must take place after all these signs, so after the tribulation. But fortunately, Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse makes all of this a bit clearer because the English translation is a little muddled in Matthew on this one specific point. Luke 21.12, it's on your outline, 
tells us that at this point of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus actually says, but before all these things. So I hope you're tracking with me. Luke tells us that in verse 9, Jesus begins telling his disciples about things that will happen to them before all the stuff he described in the list of signs that we were just reading. So we really should be reading verse 9 like this. But before all these things, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And this was the story of the early church. For the first 250 years of its existence, she was persecuted by 10 consecutive Caesars who all hated Christianity. Five to seven million Christians were killed in those 250 years. And and here's where that number becomes truly mind-blowing. Because if you take the percentage of the world's population that five to seven million was back then, and you convert it into the same percentage of today's population, it would be as though around 253,800,000 Christians had been killed over the last 250 years. 253,800,000 over the last 250 years. An absolute massacre of the church during our first 250 years. Then Jesus says, and then many will be offended. That just means caused to stumble. Many will be caused to stumble, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Luke's gospel records Jesus saying, you will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. To ensure their own safety, Family members would betray and rat out their own Christian family members, their own parents, their own brothers and sisters, their own children. And sometimes those doing the betraying would be people that everybody thought were Christians. But if you'll take your mind back to Matthew chapter 10, this shouldn't have been unexpected. Because back in Matthew 10, Jesus had told his disciples Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me, is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And I would wager that the disciples were kind of shell-shocked at this point. Jesus was saying, not only am I not about to rule the world as Messiah, but the temple's soon going to be destroyed and you're going to be persecuted, betrayed, and murdered for being my disciples. But this type of epiphany still happens all the time when believers find out that Jesus is not a genie who exists to grant our wishes. Many believers are shocked 
to find out that what the Bible teaches is that what God considers good for us might include us dying for him or serving him through some very difficult, prolonged circumstances. That's how the disciples felt. They, they were getting ready at this point for a cushy eternity that they thought was about to begin. They thought any day now, Jesus is going to start ruling the earth and we're going to be his posse. This is going to be awesome. But instead, Jesus is talking about persecution and betrayal and death. It would have been shocking. Their heads would have been spinning. And Jesus goes on in verse 11. He says, then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And we're able to read about some of those false prophets in epistles like Galatians and Thessalonians, which Paul wrote to combat the teachings of some of these false prophets and teachers. Verse 12, and because lawlessness, would you underline the word lawlessness? Because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. That word lawlessness doesn't just mean bad stuff. It's the Greek word anomia, anomia. And it's defined as the condition of without law. It's a rejection of the very idea that there are moral laws that we're bound to. That's what this word means. It's a lawlessness that is the doctrine of moral relativism or the idea that morality is just an illusion. It's a social construct. And even though we think that this is a new philosophical development happening in our day, it was the type of thinking that was prevalent in the Roman Empire during the years of the early church, especially in the major cities of Europe. Just go and read 1st and 2nd Corinthians, where Paul has to address this type of thinking in the church. In the early years of the church, this lawlessness was all around them in philosophies like hedonism, cults like the Dionysians, and the removal of moral restraint from society under the guise of enlightenment. And as sin ran rampant all around them, many, many chose sin over Jesus, as they still do. Because for them it was, hmm, persecution and death or sex parties in honor of Roman gods. I'll take the sex parties, thanks. Sin is always, always appealing to our flesh. But let me tell you, sin is exponentially more appealing when the alternative is not Christianity, but the alternative is Christianity, persecution, betrayal, and death. And so in the early church, there were many who chose to love sin over Jesus, leaving the church and the faith. I know we're cramming a lot into this message, but this stuff is so, so important, so please hang with me. I want you to notice that Jesus specifically links lawlessness. He links iniquity. He links unrighteousness. He links choosing sin over Jesus with love growing cold. I want you to notice that link Jesus makes. He says, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Now, obviously, Jesus is speaking first and foremost about people's love for him, his love for the Lord. He's saying that rampant cultural sin would cause many in the early church 
to choose sin and love sin over loving him. But there's a secondary reality, a secondary lesson I think we can pull from this. And it's this, when we give ourselves over to the willful pursuit of sin. So in other words, when we consciously choose sin to pursue it and not repent of it, to walk in sin, it naturally damages our relationship with Jesus because we're willingly doing what we know grieves the heart of God. And as we tune out the Holy Spirit, because we have to, right? In order to sin, we have to tune out the Holy Spirit, the voice that is convicting us saying, this is not good, this is not pleasing to the Lord. As we tune out the Holy Spirit in our lives, we are also tuning out the author of love in our lives. The only real love in existence is God. The only real love in existence flows through us from God. And so when we cut off that flow into our lives, we naturally begin to become less loving, less empathetic people. Oh, we might know how to go through some of the motions, but when we're cut off from that source of love, We can only keep the charade going so far. And that begins to damage all of our relationships, all of our relationships. Would you make a note of this? Sin causes love to diminish in all of our relationships. Sin causes love to diminish in all of our relationships. It's true in marriage. It's true in parenting. It's true when it comes to your brothers and sisters in the church, and it's true most of all when it comes to our relationship with the Lord. Sin causes our love to diminish, and that truth debunks the lie that we love to believe about sin. It's this lie. My secret sin is not affecting anybody else. Jesus says, yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's damaging your relationships, because your secret sin is cutting off the flow of the love of God into your life. It's diminishing your ability to love God and to love others. Verse 13, Jesus says, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. I want you to hear this. Really hear me on this. Jesus is not saying, if you endure, you'll be saved. He's not saying that. That's a works-based gospel. Jesus is saying, if you're saved, you will endure. It's meant as an encouragement, not as a warning, because his disciples are shell-shocked at this moment. Jesus isn't taking these shell-shocked, terrified disciples and saying, but if you endure to the end, you'll be saved. He's saying, no, 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 no. If you're saved, if you have faith in me, you will endure. 1 Peter 1.5, it's on your outlines, tells us that true believers are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Our part is to believe God, to have faith in God, and God is the one who provides the perseverance. God is the one who provides the endurance. God is the one who provides the grace we need to stand firm. Never forget Jesus promised in John 10, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now back to our text. Jesus has just shared again some some very difficult things that are coming the disciples' way in the future. And so he's ending this part of the Olivet Discourse with encouragement. I just explained that. And now he shares another encouragement in verse 14. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then, then the end will come. He says, guys, listen, let me encourage you. None of the things I've told you are going to stop the gospel. None of them are going to overcome my plans for you. None of them are going to overcome my church. It's going to happen. The gospel's going to reach every corner of the earth. And the story of the gospel and the church over the past 2,000 years is that the worse the persecution gets, the more the church grows. The worse the persecution gets, the more the church grows. Despite those 10 waves of persecution under 10 Caesars, despite those millions and millions of Christians who were killed during the first 250 years of the church, despite that genocide, you know what else happened? The church exploded exploded, could not be contained, could not be controlled. The gospel explodes now in places like China and Iran where persecution is so severe because it cannot be stopped. The kingdom cannot be stopped. And the gospel will indeed and pretty much has penetrated every corner of the globe. Remember, in this verse, in verse 14, when Jesus says, then the end will come, he's referring to the end times era, the beginning of end times events, starting with the rapture. And as Jesus continues with the Olivet Discourse, he's going to get into the disciples' specific questions from verse 3, and his answers are going to be coming up over these next few weeks in our study. This is the promise Jesus gives in Luke's gospel at the end of this portion of the Olivet Discourse. In Luke, he says, but not a hair of your head shall be lost. By your patience, possess your souls. Huh? If you die for Jesus now, if you're martyred, how in the world can not a hair of your head be lost? This is what Jesus is saying. If your earthly body is destroyed, you have lost nothing. Let that sink in. If your earthly body is destroyed, Jesus says you've lost nothing. Jesus is telling his boys, his disciples, you're going to wake up in heaven, in my presence, in glory, in the presence of the Father, in paradise. And when you see what you've gained in eternity by laying down your life for me, you will realize you have lost nothing. On the contrary, you have gained everything. Everything. Every disciple who lost their lives for Jesus is in the presence of God right now with a full head of hair. Not a single hair has been harmed. And I think that truth may be uh, more impactful for me than for some of you. What does Jesus mean when he says, by your patience, possess your souls? He's saying, don't freak out. Don't freak out. Don't stress out. When these things happen, Fear will want to possess your soul. Do not let it. Be patient. 
Let God's plan unfold. Bring those fears under submission to the word of God. And by doing that, you possess your souls. You take control of your soul. You command it to be in submission to the word of God. You don't let fear possess your soul. And that applies to every situation we face in life which causes fear to well up in us. The solution is to be patient. It's to look back at God's faithfulness in your life and remind yourself he's been perfectly faithful and he'll be perfectly faithful in the days to come. Don't freak out in the moment. Have faith. Be patient. Give God's plan time to unfold. Trust in his goodness. Do not let fear possess your soul. I'm going to wrap up with this. If you find your love growing cold toward your spouse, toward your kids, your coworkers, or anybody else, I've got to ask you frankly and honestly and directly, have you willingly chosen to walk in sin in some area of your life? I know you're telling yourself there's not a connection, but there is. There is a connection between choosing sin and cutting off the flow of God's love into your life and your love for others growing cold. There is a connection. And if you've chosen sin over God, your source of love is being choked out right now. If that's you, repent. Repent. Turn away from that sin. Do everything you can to get it out of your life. Turn to Jesus. He brings life to every relationship. Sin brings death to every relationship. Change now. Do it. And then listen. Jesus doesn't only know the future of our world and the future of our universe. He knows your future too, your personal, individual future. He knows what your tomorrow holds, and he'll meet you there with whatever you need to get through that tomorrow, to stand firm, to walk in the light and faith. You can trust that because you can trust him. You can rest in that because you can rest in him. And if you still feel anxious, do what our brother Peter counsels us to do. Cast all your cares upon Jesus because he cares for you. Don't worry about future issues. Don't fear. Possess your soul and trust in the Lord. He is God over all things, including your future and the future of our world. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's Word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now, because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. 
If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.